sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists at Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. You're listening to the Book Ride Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This episode 373, recording on Thursday, April 30th. Rebecca Shinsky here joining me as always. The last day of <laughs> April, looking at May, looking at June, looking in July. Looking at a big roadmap of haze, it feels like a little bit, you know? Yeah, um, it it does. I I think it was our coworker Clint sent me a link to like a t-shirt or something that was like 2020 is a leap year. Mm-hmm. Like February has 29 days, March has 30, April has five years. And I was like, but what is May going to be? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to say. You know, like I usually feel like May 1st. You know, every month changes, just in case anyone was wondering about themselves. <laughs> but, you know, not every month is the same of a turn. Like, I feel like August to September is a out, an out-of-scale meaningful yeah. turn, mm-hmm. of course, December to January. But sneakily, I think April to May. February to March, like, you can pretend you're not in winter. But sneakily, <laughs> April to May feels like, you know, maybe it's fourth out of 12 on the meaningful changes because it's like, well, May is summer, Part of May is summer, right? So maybe mm-hmm. I'm in summer now. <laughs> Weather's getting nice. May and October, my two favorite months, I mm-hmm. would say. Um, and so of, of, of my many resentments, and it's way down the list about what's going on in the world, that this has taken the, the, the feeling of May away. Because we only get so, I only get so many Mays, Rebecca. I don't have infinity Mays laying around. Yes, I'm having a similar, you know, we can play our tiny violins for these moments, sure. but they're still real violins. Mm-hmm. Um, of, like, this is one of the best times of year yes. to be outside. And normally going outside or like if I took the day off earlier this week to go hiking at a state park that was blessedly like completely empty. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's usually like kind of a sacred and really enjoyable thing for me. And now it's just a survival thing of like, well, I need to move my body and I like going outside and breathing fresh air, whatever. But that place of like nature joy and deep relaxation is just not accessible mm-hmm. at the moment. I don't I don't know anybody who has been able to access that in whatever their usual mode of doing it is. And it it's just not it's like it's not fair. Part of me just wants to like stomp my feet and be like, but this is not fair. Come on, give me my maybe Right. Yeah. And it's and the kids and I will go out for a walk and or Michelle and I, one of us or all four of us will go out for a walk every day at about three thirty. Mm-hmm. Kind of when their normal school day would end and we kind of use it as a psychic break to break up the rest of the day. Yeah. And I'm moving back and forth between, aren't we lucky that it's so nice out? And dang it, it's so nice out, (laughs) right? Because if it was February, at least we would be burning May, um, but then it'd be February and here we are. So I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. it's hit me today because it's 68 degrees and sunny outside and we will go for a walk, um, but we're not going to the coast for four days and we're not going to the zoo and we're not doing some of the Mm -hmm. other stuff. Um, and there's not much interesting news really this week either. I mean, we have a few things like, as we say, we're in this hibernation 
um, period in which some things are still happening, um, let's do a sponsor break and we'll, we'll get into what we do have. Sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists at Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. I guess before we do that, though, the Pulitzer is coming out next, is supposed to be announced on Monday. We're going to record, uh, do a quick turn on a show for the for Wednesday next week that will be discussing whatever happens with the Pulitzer. Wouldn't it be great if they just pulled one of their no word years? Not because <laughs> of the COVID, just because of like nothing's good enough. Um, so we're not even going to do it uh, this year. But we're going to be talking about whatever happens with Pulitzer Next week, then the week, the next Wednesday, that's the Fried Green Tomatoes. Read mm-hmm. the book. Uh, I've got my nice mass market paperback. It's ready. Lovely. I've got my pen ready. I think I'm going to dive yep. in this weekend. Did you notice what are, what format are you reading it in? Uh, I got a trade paperback. Oh. It has recipes from the Whistle Stop in the back. Did you look at that already? I didn't. I haven't started reading yet. I'm going to. Um, this will be my first foray into fiction since the pandemic oh, started, and I ha- I'm having to like hype myself up yeah. for. You can read a story; right. it'll be fine. Um, but it was sitting next to my desk, so now I'm holding it and I'm looking at candy yams, fried okra, and turnip and collard greens all on the same page. And that, my friends, is living. I, I, I don't want to. I mean, I'm not sure if this is going to step on the show because I haven't read the book ever, and I've seen the movie and it hasn't been in a while, but I haven't watched the movie of late. Though Michelle and I watched the first hour of Steel Magnolias the other night, which is sort of also me feeling like I'm watching Fried Green Tomatoes until <laughs> um, it gets sad. You know, you watch uh, you watch the first hour of Star is Born. I'd say I'd put the yep. first hour of Steel Magnolias in the just watch the I first agree. hour movie mm-hmm. canon um, of yep. all time. But anyway, I was looking, I was thumb, thumbing through the recipes. And I realized this book was written before the great American food revolution as we know it. Because mm, they're mm-hmm. all, I'm sure they're all fine, but it's extremely basic for, yeah. for Southern. I was like, oh, these are all, there's no, there's no drizzle of the thing on the top of the thing with this. It's just biscuits. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just fried green tomatoes. Like fried green tomatoes was the fancy thing. In yeah, the book. it's like this is before like New York chefs discovered Southern cooking yeah, and did a bunch of stuff right. to it. But like Southern food is still like in people's homes, at least is still like relatively yeah simple like these things. But to give this yeah. recipe book now, it's like it's like saying, "Have you heard of vanilla ice cream?" It's like, "Yeah, I'm good. I, you know, it's great, but you know, I'm good." Yeah, on this is the kind cream. of stuff that. Um, oh, who was the who wrote? The best cook in the Rick world Bragg. that we, yeah, Rick Bragg. This is the kind of stuff his yes. mom would have cooked. Yes, his mom yeah. would have cooked. done it exceptionally well. And look, mm-hmm. it's fried green tomatoes in cornmeal and fried in bacon and pork fat. So right. it's not like you know you're still that you're coming up from the bottom there of the pig and you're making everything out of that. <laughs> um, so anyway, I just thought it was interesting to see. It's like, oh, this isn't buttermilk graffiti version of oh, fried yeah. green it's tomatoes not, right it it's is, not something it like that which right. is more typical what you'd be reading a recipe for yeah i uh, should look and more. see if uh if there's a fried green tomatoes recipe in smoke and pickles which is oh. edward lee's like, great oh. southern fusion cookbook but yeah those right. are 
fancy recipes that like just have a flair of Southern to them. Mm. So there's that. <laughs> Welcome to Cookbook deal. Corner. Um, and I guess my critique of the recipes in a 30-year-old novel is what just happened. I'm sorry <laughs> for that. Not really a critique, an observation. I, you know, that's fine. Um, I'm th- maybe we should like cook some of the fried green tomatoes recipes. Well, that's what I was and... thinking. I was like, oh, make some. He's like, oh, but none of them. I mean, sure, but I'm not like, oh, look at this weird recipe. They're they're within right, the realm yeah. of um, normal, and I've made stuff and have made for me, you know, by people who are Southern cooks as well. Like this is stuff that like I would have had at Michelle's grandparents' house like ten mm-hmm. years ago. Which is fine. It's good yeah. to have that recipe, but it's not like, look at this weird, interesting, you know, edgy, even though her name is Iggy, uh, recipe from, <laughs> from Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, also, I'm gonna, I have this in my notes already for the show, and I'll just spoil it already here. But the epigraph is a quote from one of her own characters from Fanny Flag. <laughs> like, it's one of her own characters that gives oh, a quote. Right. That's. And I was like, what an incredible flex for a debut novel to that start out by one of your characters really? that no one knows yet. <laughs> so that's my first. I can't even get past I the first page without having any comments on it. I feel like I'm going to walk out of this experience when we, like, I haven't read the book yeah. before. And so when we do that and we do the show, I think I'm probably just going to end up convinced that Fanny Flagg is the most interesting person on earth. Listen, we can have a whole separate <laughs> conversation about that. I think it's well. I'm ready. Well ready I'm going well. I'm halfway down that google hole already Um, so speaking of being halfway done we kind of half thought through our timing for moms dads and grads some of it's a pulitzer's fault we would have used that spot next week for moms dads and grads we haven't talked about this rebecca but i think then we're still taking we're still going to take um we only have a handful so if you get a recommendation request in now we'll probably get to it um but at least through next week we'll take recommendation requests i'm not sure when we're going to do that show we're going to miss mother's day is what i'm trying to say here um, before that, because Mother's Day, I believe, is a week from Sunday, and you will not have a, a show uh, to listen to. So you might be m- dads, grads, and mom later and blame COVID and Amazon's print delivery problems. <laughs> Get it to there. But we're still we're still taking recommendations. I think the recommendation we have so far are mostly for me's, which is great. Um, but <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all yeah, right. Yeah, it is all right. Then that, I think we can re-remind people of that, too, that if you just need... Yeah. A book request or like I, I had an interesting experience um I teach yoga on Monday nights and I usually ask people you know like does anybody have any requests or anything and usually like one person has something you know their hips are sore or whatever mm-hmm. um and when I got into the zoom this week everybody just looked exhausted and no one had anything and I was like do you just need somebody else to be in charge for an hour <laughs> <laughs> And it was sort of universal yeses. And I was like, cool, mm. I got this. But if you just want us to be in charge of your next book selection, we got you. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point because, as you're saying, you, you know, I think a lot of us are having flagging energy for things we normally do. So is the best way to sort of jumpstart it to try something else, to get outside? You know, get is the reason you're in a rut is because that's a normal rut and, you know, you're double rutted? Or mm. is this a good time to try... If you're going to have to make an effort to read something, maybe you might as well use the additional uh, energy to jump out of your normal kinds of reading sorts of situations, which we could uh, talk about there, too. Uh, Let's see. I think no more sweater listener feedback this week, so I think we're all covered (laughs) there. Um, Follow-up. We talked last week about Publishers Weekly 
supporting, advocating for, otherwise uh, pumping up this books are essential hashtag, which is all wrapped up in, it's, it's sort of an informal lobbying, it seems like, of mm-hmm. the powers that be to categorize books as essential so bookstores can open up um, and not be subject to fines or other penalties um, that, you know, a nail salon or something else that's called also called non-essential would face. Um, we got into why we thought that was both both wrong in a mischaracterization and dangerous and, and maybe borderline negligent. Um, and this week or whatever week it is, um, a piece appeared in Publishers Weekly written by two agents um, basically saying kind of the same thing that we did, right, Rebecca? Like, what? I, I don't know what to say. What do you want to say? Did they say anything we didn't say or anything that caught you? We could talk about shouts to PW for publishing this maybe after, which I think yeah, we should do. Yeah. But, um, yes. What about the story uh, first? So these, yeah, the agents' names, I do want to give them shouts, are Eric Hain and Laura Zatz. Mm-hmm. And they articulated something that, I think we both missed, but had been feeling um, where the term essential they highlight is used to describe workers Mm -hmm. who perform labor that provides our society with fundamental services. And right now we're talking specifically about healthcare workers and grocery store employees. They say trash collectors, other people who do jobs that keep us safe, clean and alive. And that it's crucial that essential is a term that's applied to people um, and the work that they're doing and that they disagree with applying essential to uh, books, which are a product um, with the special and important distinction that this rallying cry of books are essential is happening at the same time that publishing is laying off workers who were already underpaid and overworked. Um, And they say, the expression, even coming from an industry periodical, feels almost callous. The product is considered essential, but the people who make it are not. Um, this logic, of course, is older than the pandemic. Uh, quote, a young person's love of books, of working for a meaningful or artistic cause, has long been used as rhetorical leverage to exploit low-level employees. And they go on to say that... Um, you know, if we really want to handle this better as an industry, then relief should be coming from the top down where the folks highest up with the highest salaries are taking the most pay cuts and trying to keep more of their workers employed by doing that all the way down the chain. Um, I was really glad to see PW mm-hmm. publish this. Um, and I think that words matter. We talk a lot about how words matter, especially right now. Right. <laughs> um, but the um, the particular way that they unpacked what essential is intended to mean right now, I really appreciated. Yeah. It, the, the argument got a little muddy around cutting top-end salaries at Random House to support indie bookstores. A little unclear mm-hmm. the line they were trying to draw. But I think the top part of the piece, which is there's a lot that goes there's a lot of prices paid to call books essential by people that may not be fair to ask them to pay it to to make a more sustainable publishing industry i mean who doesn't who wouldn't want to see that of course right um but what does that mean and how this moment is a learning experience about that i'm i'm frankly not sure what to say here i, I i'm not frankly not sure what the way forward here is i think We've been talking on multiple. We have a contributor Slack, we have a work Slack, and you know a couple other places. We've been talking around some of the same idea, and there's been a little bit of 
bookshop.org backlash this week, which is maybe mm-hmm. interesting in this context about whether it's saving bookstore, independent bookstores, or supporting them. Is it good that bookshop.org is doing so well, or should it be the case? Is the sign that they're doing so well really a sign of a gap in the independent bookselling value proposition, fulfillment, online presence sort of thing going on here? And I think one question that anyone involved in the selling of books especially is, this is a good time to reconsider how we do this. Are we doing it in a way that makes sense, that's defensible morally, um, that's sustainable financially, and resilient economically mm-hmm. to various prices? Because one, one thing you said is, you know, the, the, the bookstores that didn't think online sales or internet presences or uh, online outreach mattered to their bottom line were paying a price they didn't understand for putting all their eggs and getting the foot in the door traffic. And some of that is about diversification of risk. If you don't have, yeah, maybe you give up some in-person sales and people to come in, but then you have people habituated to using your bookstore so you can get 40% of the cover mm-hmm. price of a hardcover rather than sharing 10% of the price through bookshop.org, which is better than nothing. Like a lifeboat is better than you know, treading in the open ocean, but it's not as good as having a more resilient sailboat of your own. Yeah, when we were discussing that, and it has been really interesting seeing the sort of backlash criticism of bookshop. Um, you know, the longer that we have this conversation, the more information people have, and the more nuanced it gets. And I think that's good for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our coworkers made the point that, like, well, not all of these bookstores will make it through yep. this and be able to reopen. And I think that that's a really painful price to pay for having made choices um, about not engaging Mm -hmm. your audience and not all. And I want to be clear, like I'm aware that not all bookstores that don't survive this will be, will be falling out because they didn't have internet presences. Like there are a lot of uncontrollable circumstances and awful things that are happening. And there are stores that are struggling right now specifically because they chose not to have sales available on their website Mm -hmm. or they chose not to be on social media because they thought it was beneath them or for the millennials or whatever. Um, And these are all things I've like heard directly from people, (laughs) you know, for reasons that were given um, for those choices that were made. And so I hope that the stores that do survive this come out of it. You know, determined to build their own connections to their customer bases and to have robust online retail. Like, you know, if we don't have a vaccine soon, we're going to be going back into these shutdowns periodically. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to survive the next one and not have to rely on the 10% you're going to get from bookshop. Um, I think it, this is an eye-opening moment in that way. And the stores that are thriving, and there are some stores that are thriving, are only thriving because they paid attention to this before. And they probably weren't doing it because they thought someday they'd have to close their doors for three months and no. only sell on the internet. But they recognize that it's a valuable way to stay in touch with their customers. Yeah. And it's just a different way. And that kind of um, yeah. diversity of channel has benefits that are, that go beyond sort of a simple arithmetic of we don't like the on- online or something right. else. Because, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, in fairness, you could understand the reasoning, right? If we're competing with online book sales, why buttress the idea of buying books online at all, right? And I think maybe some of the, and maybe that was true at one point, um, but some of the mistake in the mental model, I think, is saying, 
that all online sales are equivalent to, to shopping with Big Bad A, and that people who might be your customers can't distinguish between buying books online from your store versus somebody else, which I think we've learned that they can't. And Bookshop yeah, Direct and certainly has shown in this mm-hmm. particular moment that are people are willing to try, for all intents and purposes, a brand new, no brand name, no sort of loyalty or trust equity solution just for the, the pleasure um, of, of buying books through uh, a full price, full service, independent bookstore. Like people are willing yeah. to do it. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons that a customer who likes your store might want to order on the internet instead of coming right. in. And this is a very dramatic one. Yeah. And, and, and is it is it so outside the norm that it's unfair to say, I told you so is wrong, but to say, you know, this is something that maybe should shape the future of how all businesses maybe that can, mm-hmm. um, can diversify, diversify out of physical space. Uh, I think that's that's interesting. It, not not so much different than saying it's not it's not that much different. I can imagine. I wonder if at some point said we bookstores would say we're not going to order books for you. You know, you just buy what's in the store mm-hmm. because we want you to come in, we want you to browse or whatever. But like being able to order a book for someone that they pick up in the store, it gives people more ways of of buying from you. And it's hard it's hard to come up with situations where in in, in a vacuum that I, that strategy. Uh, is bad. Um, though, on the other hand, is it the should it be different in the book ecosystem where an independent bookstore has to go out of business if it shuts its door for six weeks? What what insurance in the form of different um, terms that publishers could mm-hmm. offer bookstores? Right. Like, I, I'm not sure that there's what if any lessons are to be learned there. I think it's an interesting question. Um, like. Major publishers can respond to this changing economy. This is quotation from the piece to this changing economy in ways that still value their staff by focusing on top end salary cuts instead of layoffs or furloughs, giving up expensive properties. Now that we're learning that we can work just fine remotely and riding less on volatile boomer bus publishing and acquisition strategy, pushing sub rights, treating audio and ebooks as more than just afterthoughts to print, being creative with packaging and pushing existing backlist IP. There are lots of ways to create a steadier industry that doesn't require cutting labor when crisis hits. That's a little tough, I, but I but I, I think it's worth thinking about. Yeah, I think that they just don't make the line as clear as it could be yeah. there that they're trying to draw the connection of like one of the things that we have heard repeatedly is that like if publishers gave booksellers better terms and there were better margins on books and better um also better like better wholesale discounts yeah. and better terms for how returns work and for all of those things, that would create shift in the industry and open up the potential for other kinds of stability, like for bookstores to make enough money to provide insurance for their employees, Mm. that kind of thing, or to have a cash reserve for a moment like this. Um, So I think what they're trying to say there is, if publishers didn't have the overhead that they have, they wouldn't have to use the terms and the like tighter discounting that they use. Mm-hmm. And I, th- maybe that's true. It sounds plausible to me, but I haven't seen all of the spreadsheets. But I, it certainly makes sense to me that if um, you're not paying for super fancy offices for all of your employees, because many of them realistically really can telecommute and be just as effective, then you have money freed up. And that money can go somewhere like lightening up the terms or making things more sustainable for indie booksellers or being part of that, at least. I think that's where they're trying to get. It just doesn't come all the way out. Yeah. I mean, essentially what they're saying is lower your overhead so that you can keep the same margin 
and then basically trickle down those savings mm-hmm. to to increase the margin um, of bookstores. I mean, it's a nice thought. Does this ever happen this way? Like, is are are people who work in publishing motivated? And frankly, is it reasonable to ask them to give up salary? To, so you know, I, I don't know. I'm just not sure. It's, it's like it's easy yeah, to spend I'm, other people's money. It's like, oh, you know what's an easy solution to this? You take less and I'll get more. <laughs> right? That's, an easy, no, that's I, an easy solution for everything. I think it's complicated by the way that publishing talks about independent bookstores yeah. with so much awe and appreciation and we love them and we need them and bookstores are essential and what would we do without independent bookstores and like that's all wonderful and many like I feel that way I love a bookstore but when push comes to shove like publishers actions are about protecting the publishers Mm -hmm. bottom line and that's also totally understandable they are businesses and they have shareholders that they have to report to and that's how it works but the discourse in the industry sets up this expectation i think that well if publishers really do value their relationship with indie bookstores if they really do rely on events held in bookstores and these booksellers ties to their local communities and their ability to like take a book and hand sell it into becoming a bestseller if these things are really valuable then put your money where your mouth is and do something to help us and the gross unspoken thing there is maybe publishing doesn't value independent bookstores as much as they would like independent bookstores to to think. I, I think that's fair. And it, it reminds me of when I talked to Guy Gonzalez about the Panorama Project. And it's like tr- they're trying to understand the value in a capital V, uh, you know, gross capitalist value of library services to publishing's bottom line. Because if it's more than they think it is, then they're undercapitalizing on an opportunity. And if it's less than they understand it to be, then they're protecting library revenue streams for at the cost of something else. So it's really are you doing what you think is the right thing? And is it the right thing at the same time? Is it the case that publishing should, from its own survival point of view, subsidize, subsidize is the wrong term, alter the terms of the agreement Mm -hmm. writ large that they have with booksellers um, for their own bottom line? Or should they do it out of vocational awe for indie books, you know, to use the same kind of idea? This Mm -hmm. the very same, I mean, it's possible that it's coming from the same, the, the getting to, Two different collusions from the same directions. Our books are essential. Hashtag, here's a picture of me reading my awesome book. We all love bookstores. Um, is that coming from the same place to say that publishing should move out of its offices and cut salaries to support independent bookstores? The implicit argument there is they're dumb if they don't, or is it they're bad people if they don't, right? Those are two different questions, actually. Are they mm-hmm. dumb business people yeah. if they don't, or are they sort of evil people somehow if they don't? And... I think that that evaluation is conflated a lot of times. I think publishing knows what it's doing. I think one thing I've learned doing this job is that more people <laughs> do know what they're doing more than you think, and everybody has their reasons. Everybody has their reasons for doing the thing they're doing. They're, they're not sitting around like on a pile of good ideas that should be implemented with their thumb up their butt. Like they have reasons <laughs> they're not doing stuff. No, I mean, I'm serious, mm-hmm. Rebecca. Like, yeah, it's so yeah, easy. Yeah, to no, say, no, I know. It's so easy to say, well, those people should be doing something else when it doesn't affect me in any way, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> Frankly, it does affect a lot of these people. What motivation does a does an executive at Insert Publishing House here to cut their salary by fifty grand to trickle down for fifty bucks a piece for a thousand bookstores? Like, ah, it's so hard to make that argument um, in a way that that makes sense to anybody. So, I, I don't know. I, I think 
you know, one of the things that we're seeing here is any kind of event like this exposes tensions within any situation, whether it's your family mm-hmm. situation, educational system, economic system. But I think it is bringing to bear in the space of a couple sentences in the, you know, in, in the space of a couple paragraph breaks, moving from protect workers to publishers to cut their salaries. A fascinating jump about how we understand where the value is and where someone can, quote unquote, sacrifice for somebody mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And I'm, I've been seeing a lot of analogous discussions about the restaurant industry um, and probably other industries, but books and restaurants are the ones that I'm paying attention to. I would, I'd actually be really interested in it if listeners are seeing these in other places, restaurants though, being so widely closed right now um, that you're seeing people talk about what should be different when we come Mm -hmm. back. And in the immediate, it's stuff like better protection, both, you know, physically for workers and also economically. Um, But looking at, at like what's actually sustainable for restaurants? How many restaurants does a city need to support? Um, like Amanda and I were talking about how in Richmond, I think there was a report last week that like nine of the bajillion restaurants here um, that are closed for the pandemic have already announced that they will not be reopening. They're closing permanently. And I was telling her like nine actually seems really low to me. Like yeah. we're in a city with a huge number of restaurants. It's kind of astonishing that we were supporting as many restaurants as we were before. And I think this does, as you were saying, expose a lot of tensions or expose a lot of businesses that were like just sort of barely making it. And what is sustainable for the community to continue supporting is very likely going to look different after this and how that shakes out is going to be interesting, and painful. And I think it will be different. Um, But for like worker protections with income, I was seeing um, for the restaurant industry a lot of suggestions that the industry should move away from the tip-based yeah. pay model um, and so that workers will get, so servers especially will get like a baseline pay that's you know much higher that allows them to access health insurance and better unemployment benefits and all kinds of things that would be unlocked that are better for them. But the model where they rely on tips benefits the businesses. Mm-hmm. So how do you shake that out if you're a business owner? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, uh, and shouts to Publishers Weekly for publishing. It's not easy to, to publish something that um, mm-hmm. calls you out and says you're not only wrong, but being dangerous. Um, so that's that's a good job on their part. Interesting piece to look at. Um, Eric Kane and Laura Zatz. Um, good job from you guys, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent a little more time on that than we thought. We had some juice there, but let's do another sponsor and do some other stuff. All right. Um, literacy as a constitutional right is not, again, I'm not deep in the weeds of, <laughs> of liter- you know, literacy and... Um, teaching the teaching of writing and composition in early childhood literacy is its own field, right? It's its own, you know, genre of education that exists alongside and in support of and, and has its own field of theory too. Um, but this ruling and this U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals held this week that access to a basic minimum education that can plausibly impart literacy is a fundamental constitutionally projected right. Uh, this came out of a claimed that the state of Michigan failed to provide a suitable education to a plaintiff group of Detroit public school students after invoking the state's emergency management powers to take over control of the schools. At the trial, plaintiffs argued that they were forced to sit in classrooms that were functionally incapable of delivering access to literacy, 
marked by unqualified instructors and a dearth of textbooks and other school supplies. The result, the number of students with zero or near zero proficiency levels on state-administered um, exams. An interesting idea with fascinating ramifications that I think is in part about funding levels, I would think, at some point. Like where the rubber would meet the road on this is if, this, if the city of Detroit is found to be negligent, then that suggests that the state and city have a fiduciary responsibility to support and tax appropriately um, to support this kind of education. I have never seen a case like this. I didn't get into, I looked around, I couldn't see kind of a, where, where in the Constitution, like what, what were they pointing to that says this is a, um, uh, a protected right? Um, but I'd be fascinated to see. And I wondered if we had some legal mavens out there that could, mm. con- that could uh, comment on us. What did you take from this? Did you see where they were pointing to? Like where in the Constitution are they, I, are they, are they, are they gleaning or inferring this right? No, but I also didn't go as far down this rabbit hole as I would mm-hmm. have liked to. Um, right at the top of this piece, I think, is an important core of it, that the court holds that basic literacy is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty because it's central to the basic exercise of other fundamental rights, including political participation. Mm-hmm. So like from that, I took like my, my inference there is... That we all have the right to vote, Mm. to exercise and participate in these fundamental rights, exercising, you know, the concept of ordered liberty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But in order to do that, we have to be able to understand what it is that we're voting on um, and understand how we want to participate politically. Um, And literacy is the core of that. I think this is it's really interesting. I don't think I know enough about it to say much more. Beyond that, it feels this feels like a powerful idea to me in a political moment like the one we've been living in for the last four years, where analysis of information um, and the like the ability to take in information and be literate about access to information first, like the, the ability to read the information that is available to you and then to understand and parse it is certainly important for exercising your political rights and feels very important in a time when there's a lot of misinformation and intentionally bad information being disseminated. Mm. Um, Hmm. I don't think that has, I don't think the timing is intentional Mm. there. Like this happened in, in the state of Michigan in like previous to 2016 and the court case happened in 2016 and this has been going through appeals, but um I feel like a stirring in my soul in a nice way about this concept that literacy is crucial for all of us to have if we are all to exercise mm-hmm. fundamental rights, including being part of the political process. Yeah, I did just a little Googling of, because this has to be a relatively new idea that, you know, to be able to read is not, I mean, we we've seen ways in which historically, um, literacy tests have been used to keep people from the polls, right? Especially mm-hmm. black people in the South. Because um, like basically using the same argument, well, if you can't read, then you can't vote. Well, th- this is sort of the other way around. Um, the the duty is not on the individual to be able to right. read. The duty is on the state, essentially, 
um, to be able to read. Uh, any guess what the literacy rate in the U.S. in 1870 was? Just to pick a random Ooh. number that I have. In 1870. Yeah, what percent of the entire adult population was illiterate? I, I, it's both high and low. Illiterate or literate? I guess, uh, okay, I'm going to guess. Illiterate. Which was, what percent okay. is illiterate? Illiterate in 1870. Yeah. This is unfair. <laughs> illiterate. 65 percent that feels low only 20 percent only 20 percent <gasps> wow okay yeah. um today in the u.s it's i got one percent okay um but 80 i gotta brush up on no, the history it's unfair. man that was it's unfair it's unfair <laughs> that feels like a miss by an embarrassing no, proportion no, I, I would have missed equally i was like well no one could read in 1870 um but 80 of the black population was illiterate for i think reasons that are distressing and um, historically mm, obvious mm-hmm, uh, in 1870 yeah. coming out of the Civil War. By 1900, we moved to 44% of black people um, were illiterate. So in 30 years, cutting in half, that restoration was a wild time. Um, but, you know, that the, the idea here that the state has fallen down in its responsibility to provide the service for which it's intended, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I guess in some ways it makes a plain text sense of like, if your school yeah. isn't doing the things schools are for... You're negligent. That makes sense. Yeah. And the thing that your taxpayers are paying yeah, for, right, you right. know, um, like I'm paying taxes that go to schools and I don't have kids because like, first of all, I don't have a choice right. because that's, how, that's taxes how taxes work. work. But I, right. But I believe in it mm. because I want to live in a society with an educated populace right. that can make good choices. Um, so I, that's, that's one that, you know, it's not really in the realm of our influence, but seems like a big enough story that it was worth commenting on for those of you who are, I know so many of you out there care, um, as, as we do about, you know, how public policy and reading and books, um, get, you know, enmeshed in a lot of ways. Speaking of, did we cover this story on the show last week? I feel like maybe. I don't think we did. Uh, yeah. We must've dropped it off at the end, but a school board in Alaska, um, pulled classics, including The Great Gatsby, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sing and Sings, and others from the school curriculum. Um, uh, for I didn't say how, what would you even call the reasons? I mean, besides dumb, it's a real grab bag. Yeah. So, the uh, Matanuska Susitna Borough School Board. It's in Palmer, Alaska. They oversee 46 schools. That, so that's meaningful, too. This is not like one school that we're seeing a challenge in. They removed five books. It's Gatsby, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, Catch-22, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And the reasons include, like, for I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, sexually explicit material, such as the sexual abuse the author suffered as a child. And, like, Equating a depiction of sexual abuse with being sexually explicit is problematic on a you know a thousand levels. They also say that there's anti-white messaging in "I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings." Um, Fitzgerald's Gatsby was pulled for language and sexual references. Invisible Man was um, marked for containing language, rape, and incest. Catch Twenty Two was included for violence, a handful of racial slurs, and the fact that the characters speak with military men misogyny and racist attitudes of the time. Mm. So, like in this grab bag. We have that I know why the cage bird sings is not okay because it supposedly has anti-white messaging (laughs) and catch 22 isn't okay because it contains like 1940s era racism. Mm. (laughs) It's, 
just feels like a bunch of people got uncomfortable about a bunch of things and took a moment to try to remove these books or who they did vote successfully to remove the books. Um, this was also done on a um, a digital conference because everything is digital during the coronavirus pandemic and folks certainly felt and one person says uh, in this piece that they thought the board had tried to slip it under the radar. Um, the best part of this, though, is that the citizens of Alaska in this school board have rallied around this um, have rallied around to oppose this decision and formed a group of parents um, and a group of, I'm not sure it's all parents, just a group of citizens that are basically bribing slash rewarding students. Um, they'll pay you a hundred bucks if you read all five of these books that were just removed from your school. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> one of the more, I don't, I don't even know how to say it. I, I guess it feels obtuse about literature in a way that we don't see mm -hmm. when we talk about these kinds of stories that often it's not yeah. that there are some like anything difficult is subject to right. anything mm -hmm. everything difficult is subject to inspection it doesn't seem to to have a neat left right sort of um uh alliances sometimes we see it, well, let's be honest, it's mostly from the right, <laughs> um, mostly almost exclusively um, from the right. So I, it, it's it's interesting to see. And, and also, like, this list is probably, if you're making a list of the 50 contenders for the great American novel, I know why mm -hmm. the case we're seeing is sort of part memoir, part fiction. Let's throw it on there because there are rules. Get your own podcast. Um, there, there are five of the 50 that would be, if you left them off, you'd be like, what are you doing? Like what? 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 Right. Why are we even having this conversation if we're going to leave them off? <laughs> right, and then like I don't know what was on the list or what has remained on their reading list, but yes. it's notable that you know a lot of the books that we do see commonly challenged or the classics that are commonly challenged aren't on here. Like there's no Huck Finn, which has a lot of the N word. Yeah. There's no To Kill a Mockingbird, which also has very problematic depictions of race. Like it's it their reasoning is unclear, except for like at the very bottom of this piece in the Guardian, they quote Jeff Taylor, who's one of the board members. He voted in favor of the removal. He also admitted to only having read The Great Gatsby out of those five books. Very and he said tough. that he very mm -hmm, he said that he voted in favor of the removal because he, quote, wants to give parents more freedom, control, and involvement in determining what their children read. That I have no doubt that these books will be read more in the near future than they have been in the recent past. There are even rewards being offered for those who read them. I applaud those who choose to read these books on their own accord. I applaud parents and caregivers who are involved in their students' education, blah, blah, blah. If these are books that interest you, by all means, check them out. That's the beauty of freedom. But it's this weird, like almost libertarian thing of like everyone should just decide what they read and everyone should decide what their children get to read and if that's true then why bother having school reading lists at all like why are they not abolishing the concept of school reading lists if the con if the idea here is to give parents more freedom instead of just taking off these five also it fundamentally misunderstands like why we have educators but that's, that's a whole, whole other. another situation and it, it really invites the question of if you're going to ban these kinds of books with such a sort of carpet bombing objection to discomfort of any kind, you know, if it's this kind of racial talk or if it's offensive or there's violence or there's sex or there's other kinds of things, what are we doing here? Why are we even having high school literature courses? 
They don't. Right. I think this is one of those situations. They fundamentally don't want to engage with the kinds of ideas that these books bring up, right? And so one mm-hmm. way around that is to say, well, this isn't. I mean, it's. We also don't see high school list challenge anymore. Like very rarely, right, Rebecca? Yeah, like it's true. very rarely, we're actually mm-hmm. talking about a high school reading list. Um, that feels like that's ground that's largely been um, covered um, and, and non-contested at this point. And maybe these people also don't understand how the internet works around stories like this more. Like, I don't know where the Manuska Sestina Borough School District in Alaska is. Um, I, I'm guessing that they were surprised to see it um, <laughs> in the New York Times, which I did see a story about the New York Times this morning. Yeah. Which is yeah, great. I had a friend. Which is great. Yeah, this was, this was one of those things that bubbled up like outside the bookish world yeah. where um, when I woke up, I think on Tuesday morning this week, I had a text from a friend who gets up way earlier than I do that was a link to this story from Apple News. And she was like, can you believe this business? Mm-hmm. And I was first like, Oh, friend, this happens all the time. Right. (laughs) But she owns a yoga studio. So like she only knows of the book ban attempts that make their way up to something like Apple News. And that's always how I have a sense of like, oh, this one really was a big deal Mm -hmm. and that it made its way out there. Like, yeah, this this is real. This happens. People are still doing this and they're doing it all the time. And this is, I think, one of the more confusing ones because it isn't clear what value it's trying to protect other than, as you were saying, not having to engage with anything difficult or troubling under the guise of like, let parents decide at all. But like, if you want to decide everything your kid reads, I invite you to homeschool them. Yeah. And I, I don't even know, like, where would you go? Like, where would you go for high, like what? I can't pick Shakespeare. There's sex, there's violence, people die. Okay. You don't understand the insults and expletives. That's, you know, doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, like you said, Huck Finn, I, I'm not going there. I'm not going to Poe. I'm not going to Melville. I'm not going to Faulkner. I'm not going to, I don't know, Charles Dickens. Uh, I'm not going to Dostoevsky. I'm not going to Tolstoy. Mm-mm. I'm not going to <laughs> Turkey. I mean, where, where are you going? Where are you going? I, it seemed, it's so wild. Like, I mean, it's like almost like the Mitch McConnell thing of starving the beast, right? Like, don't mm-hmm. fund the things. You, you know they're going to fail. Don't fund them and let them fail. And that means we don't need the thing. I'm sorry, I'm getting political right. here for a second. Like, oh, look at that thing that's failing <laughs> that we didn't give any money to. Boy, looks like we that thing doesn't work. It's like, okay, you don't want people to have, uh, you're not comfortable with people engaging with anything interesting or difficult or meaningful or complicated. And, you know, the reason it breaks out, I think, is both useful and a little troubling, is that if this list included George by Alex Gino or mm-hmm. I Am Jazz by Jazz Jennings, we would be talking about it, but it doesn't make the New York Times. It makes it because it's right. the Great Gatsby, right, Rebecca? Like, I think that's the other piece of this we need to say out loud. Like, even yes, if this yeah. is, I know why the cage works sing Invisible Man and Catch-22, it's not making the list. It's because of the Great Gatsby. It's because right. white and people read this stuff and they care yes. about it. Yes, yeah, and th- that's exactly it. And that, like... It may be, it may very well be time to revisit what we consider canonical yeah. and what gets taught in English classes. And we've talked about like take to kill a mockingbird off your syllabus. Yeah. There are other ways to talk about the history of racism in this country, and that's fine. But this is also not an investigation of the canon. No, 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 <laughs> like, no, no. This is this is all. I think just also a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of books. Period. That's right. That's right. Or why we th- care, why people who care about literature care about literature. Um, 
mm-hmm. I, I think writ large is, is this kind of thing. So now I'm all head up about that. <laughs> I know not to mention that like Invisible Man is your favorite. I, it's not novel. cool. And we both love the things they carry. And, like I stand for all yeah, these books and, actually. Yeah. Catch 22 is one mm-hmm. of my longstanding favorites. Maya Angelou is just untouchable. You have the great Gatsby. There's so much to talk about and learn there. Yeah. And we both do deeply stand for the things they yes. carry. Like it's, this is a, I feel very personally victimized by the school board. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to think like if you were trying to get the reaction you got from this, would you pick? Yeah, I don't think you could pick a more provocative. Uh, maybe <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird, you could swipe out the things they carried. A lot of people don't know the things. They yeah, carried, if so. you put on like To Kill a Mockingbird and I'm trying to think of what mm. else. You, I mean, Huck Finn's been around the block so many times. I don't think you get anything there. Maybe Shakespeare. Maybe you put on Hamlet. Like what? Well, yeah, Juliet, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Right. Something mm-hmm. like that. Um, oh, man. I would love to see a story about a school board trying to ban Jane Austen. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what, I guess Pride and Prejudice doesn't have anything. It's safe. Except for all the, you know, structural misogyny. Um, that's actually somehow even differently terrifying. But that's a different uh, situation that's beyond the scope of this. Anyway, um, let's end with good news and a couple of different fronts. Um this is one of the things I'm surprised I haven't seen something like this before. Maybe it's out there, but again, the book itself is so out of scale and exemplary that it's hard to use it as evidence of anything. But Becoming by Michelle Obama is going to be a documentary on Netflix, presumably out, I think, does it say here, out of the, the Obama's you know production deal? They have their own higher ground. I can't remember what it is. Yeah, higher, it is here. So they yeah. have a production company. They have the book. They have the deal. So they have all the pieces. And let's be honest, the best-selling nonfiction book of all time, I think, is what we're talking about, at least in year sales. It's going to be a documentary. Seems like a natural and maybe a duh kind of a moment for for very good, for very, very, very yeah. popular memoirs um, where I the people it's... are still alive and you could do the thing yeah. in the room. I don't know. And it's a documentary made basically of while she was on book tour yeah. for Becoming. So I've... I'm kind of fascinated that we didn't get this story until April 27th about the yeah. documentary dropping on <laughs> Who are May all those 6th? guys with cameras all over the place? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it makes so much sense. She went on a huge tour mm. and the, like the book was just a huge sensation. It's a it has to be fascinating to, you know, be behind the scenes with her on a tour like that talking about her life transitioning out of being the first lady and into this version of private citizen and author and just icon. Um, I'm ready to watch this. I think it's going to be really interesting. Amanda and Jen and I went to see her speak on tour in DC and Barack showed up. Mm. And my first thought was like, Oh, maybe some of it was filmed there. You know, but like there are thousands of people who went to see her on these tours and are going to watch this and many, many more who want to be, part of that. I think it's super smart. Now I'm think I've been trying to think about like who else with a big memoir and a big book tour. Well, I mean, there have if been you, a have a bit, you, you don't always know at the time who has a big book. <laughs> you, you need the celebrity for the thing to have a book tour where you can, you film it on site. Right. I was thinking like, so often we see like a memoir like this get turned into a, a you know, sort of a regular movie that has a star playing the thing. But mm-hmm, I think a documentary mm-hmm. is so smart because if people care about the book, they want to see the actual person. Also, the budgets are much lower for documentaries. It's much cheaper to make a documentary. Yeah, like if you made Educated with Tara Westover a documentary was, of it, 
Like that was about to be my example. Oh, I, I could feel that... it, so I had to jump on it. I had to get on it before you could say it, because that's my idea. I get credit, Internet. <laughs> We've never thought the no, same thing at the same time right. before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Educated is a perfect example there. These big memoirs for people, as you were saying, are invested in the author and that person and their story and their life. And like what happened with Tara Westover and the way that book blew yeah. up was really incredible. Like I would have I would like a similar one about Megan Phelps Roper mm. whose book about leaving Westboro Baptist Church like it didn't blow up in the way that Educated did, but her life in the wake of writing that book and then like really telling her story publicly has been very interesting. Yeah. Um I don't know, I went to see Hillary Clinton on the tour for What Happened and I would well I probably would have cried for all 3 mm. hours of the documentary, but I would watch a documentary about that process for sure. I would like to see more of this. Yeah, I I mean, you think of something like and again, um, I'm, she's top of mind because I don't know if you know this. Do you know Helen McDonald has a new book coming out in August? Did I tell you this? I am oh, aware we talked of about this, on the yes. show. Did we talk about it on the Deal show? <laughs> I think we did. I don't know if it was Helen McDonald or, um, or I don't know if it was the Deal show or if it was just like private yeah, Muppet Army. I can't but, remember. Yeah. Anyway, that's a spoiler for a future Deal show. But like H is for Hawk, right? Sold very well. Yeah. Literary perfect for a, a bespoke kind of streaming service you don't need to open in a bunch of movie theaters you just need you know a, a hundred thousand jerks like me to watch it and keep my netflix subscription and it doesn't cost as much to do um i, I think i hadn't really thought about the memoir as a documentary kind of a reality not reality television is wrong kind of a, i don't even know but like a venue to build off of a book's success without yeah. becoming now it's now it's starring uh, Jessica Chastain as T- Tara Westover like Hillbilly Elegy, <laughs> which is being turned into a, a movie by you know a regular movie come on now mm-hmm. by Ron Howard starring uh, I don't know who it's starring I have no idea maybe it's Jessica Chastain for all I know that's what I but like that movie <laughs> is a documentary to me is like ten thousand times more interesting than the, the right or like my most recent memoir example because I just finally got around to reading it after you recommended it to me years ago is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. Like a documentary interviewing him and a bunch of those other people. Surf footage. Yeah. Surfers in the 60s and 70s before before surf culture took over and like created Mm -hmm. destinations. I'm 100% here for that. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm excited to see this. (laughs) Um, I haven't yet gotten to Becoming. It's one of those, I'm going to get to that eventually. And then it... You know how it falls into that valley of you didn't get to it, but there's also not a reason to pick up it, pick it up now. Um, but I am very interested to see uh, how this how this pans out. Um, last, yeah, I, I'll have to say, like I thought she was a little Michelle was like a little more controlled on the page in becoming that I was hoping she would be. Like there was more openness and personality mm-hmm. and like you know real stories from their life and I totally understand why she would want to be like more controlled or hold uh, more things back but I love watching her when she is just mm-hmm. open <laughs> um, and I, I'm hoping that this like you know behind the scenes stuff certainly she's aware that there's a camera there yeah. um, but it's a different situation from like sitting on stage answering a planned question that you know is going to be like filmed and tweeted and Instagrammed and mm-hmm. all that stuff yeah do you get a little like, you know, walking from the stage to the bus or the green room, do you get a little right, loosening right. of the shoulders? Um, mm-hmm. And I guess loosening, loosening of the lips yeah. uh, along with it. You want to hear some of that spontaneousness. Mm-hmm. Last one, it's not really a story that we have much comment, but kind of a just an announcement of people that might um, be eligible or be interested. And in. We Need Diverse Books is launching an emergency fund for diverse creators and children's publishing. Um, emergency grants of 500 each diverse writers, illustrators, and publishing professionals affected by the pandemic. 
Um, there's submission guidelines. Put a link in the show notes there. Um, you can also make a donation if you'd like to support this fund in any way. Um, the, you know, this is a good time to think about where you're going to give and what you want to support in these times. Mm-hmm. Um, a little goes a long way. Uh, so that's um, diversebooks.org. And listening, I know, can be hard to come back and look at the show notes. You can find it there. But as always, you can find links to this story and all of this stuff we talked about um, at bookriot.com. Listen, you can navigate there to the Book Riot podcast. Get us your recommendation requests. They can be for you or not. They can be for anyone. You know, whatever you're interested in reading more about. You know, we got a request this week for an episode of doing our favorite books episode. Oh. Which is a little too much um, tire for me to try to, to ride <laughs> at some point. But we might try as we get into summertime. Maybe we'll do more themed. People really like the the, the the Traveling Without Moving episode that we did that was themed. Yeah, that was fun. I don't think a general best books will get us anywhere, um, but maybe we'll tr- but we, we could, can slice it up. We can, we can slice up yeah, the pig. I think we could drill down into like more specific sections mm-hmm. of our favorites, but we we have enough sort of like topical yeah. overlap yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah, for um, sure. Pulitzer, and okay. at some point this summer, Jeff, we have to figure out what we're going to do with Marilyn Robinson. <laughs> You know, I'm holding that in abeyance. I have a couple things I'm holding in abeyance. We need to get to a summer preview. Some of it is we're waiting for the summer pub dates to settle down. <laughs> settle down. Right, right. We have a summer preview we need to do. We have half-baked ideas we need to do. Um, we're going to both contribute some half-baked ideas. I also think, based on a conversation you and I had yesterday, a what we're into during our quarantines. It's mm. kind of a non-book episode because we spent a long time talking about Let's not spoil it about something <laughs> yeah. we're both into right now. Both of our households are into uh, yeah. right now. Sort of a mid-year version of the best yeah, of the rest yeah, of the, yeah, the yeah. holidays. But yeah. these are unusual times, um, mm-hmm. so maybe we'll jump in there. So we got stuff coming up, um, but you'll next hear from us uh, now if you're listening to this early in, in May um, for the Pulitzers. I guess I, it's, it feels like um, 5,000 years ago, 2019, in the books that came out in 2019. Yeah. Uh, so trust exercise won the National Book Award. Sometimes that means you're the favorite. I, I think that was kind of went over. I don't. It didn't go over like a lead balloon. I'm not sure the legs on that book have been great after the National Book Award. I wouldn't. I don't know. There's too much stock to put in it. Uh, to mm. there, I would say my favorite going in to the National Book Awards was Nickel Boys. I still think maybe that's where I put my most money. But because of the December 31st, such a fun age, Kylie Reed, I've got a little bit of a dark horse, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, a side bet at the track on such a fun age. Does anything else come to mind for the fiction category as a favorite or something you'd like to, you you think deserving that you pull for? I think on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous has a shot there. Right. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. I wish I would have thought of that. Um, So that's a good thing, too. You know, you thought of educated first. By maybe a half a second, and I was just because I was talking. Um, I don't know. Like it, it's hard to know. We're always so wrong about this with Pulitzers, I and wrong. I feel like I'm wronger about the Pulitzer than anything else yeah. because there's no short list no. to go from, and there's no long list. There's no narrowing at all. So it's just like imagine all the books that came out last year and pick three. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. Um, so it'll be exciting to talk about books we haven't read. No, maybe we'll have read. I mean, we've read these books. So if it's one of those, that's yeah, who knows? We're, we're talking about. So read and watch your fried green tomatoes. Um, we're into that. The book is longer than I thought. Did you catch that? Mm. Seems a little bit longer. I'm sure it'll go quick. Oh, 
Yeah. Maybe it's just your mass market paperback looking. Oh, you know what? Squatty. I haven't picked like, up a mass market paperback in a the, while. I forget the chunks yeah, are quality. The trade paperback that I'm holding, actually, I mean, it's 420 pages. That's Seems a little long. long. Seems long. Yeah. 385 before the uh, recipes start, no. it seems like. No. Yeah. That's all right. On the long side, but also the font is enormous in mine. Oh. I, um, I I can't hmm. shut up about it. So this is we'll, we'll get out on this because this I had the I had the thoughts about thinking about um, we talked about when we were doing the nominations for it that it, it felt ahead of its time, and it got me wondering about the invention of the category of women's fiction. Do we mm. know like what? I don't feel like that was a thing in the '60s, '70s, and '80s necessarily. But I think there might be a reasonable case that if it's not the first, if it's not if it's not the Archaeopteryx of the the birds that became women's fiction, that it feels like Fried Green Tomatoes of the Whistle Stop Cafe could be a harbinger, and then when women's fiction as an idea and as a as a category really picked up, I'd love to know the history of that idea. And maybe I'm wildly wrong, but my sense is that this is like a proto version uh, of what we would now call women's fiction. But I don't think it would have been called that when this came out. Do you have a sense of it, Rebecca? Ooh, I don't. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll do some. I'll do some homework in anticipation of the show. But that was one observation I had going in. It's like, yeah, oh, I think we'd call the, this women fiction now, but I don't think we would have called it that then, or it was called that. Then. Yeah, it's interesting. My copy has a blurb on the back from Harper Lee. I, I'm, I was. I have that in my notes. An unbelievable blurb. <laughs> And quotes from reviews in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the Houston Chronicle, mm-hmm. and the a seal on the spine for the Random House Readers Circle, which is tr- like a traditionally book club marketed thing towards women readers. But getting reviews in the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Washington Post is not something that typically happens to the stuff that we like you know, sort of have ghettoized traditionally Mm. as women's fiction or in however long that tradition has existed. Um, Mm. Yeah, maybe it does feel like you don't get to the divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood without passing through the whistle stop cafe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And and I should say, I don't use that term derogatory. I use it in the term that in the way that it's sort of used as a category, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, in in my in my worldview, the discussion about the um, condescension towards women fiction is sort of the Franz and Jennifer Weiner thing from five six years ago when we first started doing this. And I know that that it uh, was before that as well. But like, I bet I can find an academic study about um, somebody's got a thesis about yeah, this. yeah because like, like Pride and Prejudice, right? But we didn't call it. It wasn't a commercial category in the way we think of it now. Like. Um, but anyway, putting into that kind of modern literary context, because it does feel like a vestige of an older time of liter- uh, of, of publishing and reading, but also has a modern sensibility. So I think it's going to be interesting to, to look in that um, through that lens. Okay. So after really winding down, I spun back up. So we're going to try to wind <laughs> it back happens. down. Rebecca, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> Have a good one.